Before we get to this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this journey. I'm having great conversations with people on Twitter, DMs in Instagram, through my website. Thank you for engaging. It makes the project feel so fantastic. So without any further ado, let's go on. Want to get down in the bottom of that pit? Want to see what's in that evil pouch? Well, we're about to get up close and personal with these people. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we're slow walking right now with the damned or over the damned or through the damned or near the damned in Inferno, the first third of Dante's masterwork, comedy. We have come to Canto 19 of Inferno. We are in the eighth circle, the largest narrative length of Inferno, the circle of fraud. We will be here for a good long time. We have already passed two evil pouches, and now we're on to the third. We're at lines 31 through 45. We've been looking down at the perforated ground that has holes in it with legs and feet sticking up, kicking out of them. But we need a closer look, don't we? Well, our pilgrim certainly does. And that's this passage. Master, who is that one there? I ask, who twists himself and writhes around more than the others and who is sucked at by an even redder flame. And he to me, if you prefer... I'll cart you down that easier slope on the other side so that you can learn about his transgressions and his life. And I, for me, it's just perfect to do whatever pleases you. You're my lord, and you know I won't depart from your will. You also know the things I don't even articulate. So we came onto the fourth embankment, turned and went down on the left to the straightened bottom that was perforated with holes. My good master pulled me to his side and didn't put me down until we came to the hole where the sinner made his lamentations with his legs. We're going to stop right there before this sinner has a chance to speak and before Dante and he have one of the great conversations of Inferno. I just want to look at the descent down the slope because it's curious for many reasons. If you've been with me through the 19th Canto, you already know that this is a super difficult Canto full of curious moments. And here are a few more. The passage starts out, Master, who is that one there? who twists himself and writhes around more than the others and who is sucked at by an even redder flame. Notice they've come to a particularly bad example. Apparently, these thighs and feet are kicking out of these holes as these sinners are head down in them. But this seems to indicate to us that this was a particularly bad one. Redder flame. Hotter? Redder? I know. <laughs> we now, in the 21st century, would wish it to be a bluer flame because we would know that it would be much hotter. But okay, let's let Dante have his moment. The redder flame. And I think it's important to see the color. Remember, these are livid stones. It's gray. These are gray shades down here. 
And yet there is this kind of neon red, and one of them is very red. Don't miss the color in the schemes of Inferno. In such a colorless place, the colors just jump out, and that here it's more red than others tells us that we're at a particularly bad example. Look at that verb, sucked at, who is sucked at by an even redder flame. Mandelbaum says this is used, this verb is used to indicate oil being sucked up by a wick. Remember in the last episode of the podcast, we came upon that bit in which the flames move across the dam's feet uh, like uh, flames move across oil on a surface. And I likened it to pouring oil on top of another liquid and then lighting the oil on fire or coating a rock in oil and lighting it on fire and how the fire would move around the oil without necessarily, of course, igniting the water or the stone underneath. And this word sucked at, uh, Mandelbaum says, is to remind us of this oil, and it's like oil being sucked up the wick of a lamp. Nice point by Mandelbaum, but there's a little bit further we can go here, and that is this is a very mature writing strategy right here. And Dante practices it occasionally in comedy, and he's starting to practice it more. And that is, he is pulling the metaphor into the narrative space. Let me explain this just a moment. Remember in the last passage, we had a metaphor about what this flame is like. Again, the flame has ignited oil that is on the surface of some object, and that was the metaphoric understanding of what these flames look like. If Mandelbaum is right in his notion here of sucked up a wick at this verb, then that metaphor is being pulled into the story, into the narrative space. It's not just sitting there as explanatory, but it is actually forming part of the narrative space of the poem itself. Dante will sometimes have trouble with this. If I can fault Dante for anything, it is that his metaphors, while gorgeous, he is long, and we're going to get to some giant metaphors ahead in fraud, and you're going to want to think about why fraud is full of such giant metaphors. You know I'm going to get super meta with that. But right now, what I want to say is sometimes those metaphors just sit on the text and they don't enter the narrative, the story space of the text. When Dante is most successful as a writer, it is when he allows his metaphors and his narrative to do a strange fusion. I'm going to call your attention back to the very first canto of Inferno when our pilgrim wakes up in the dark wood. And remember, he struggles for a bit at a hill and he tries to start to climb the hill. And it says there as he starts to climb the hill, then uh, the fear that I endured in the lake of my heart was calmed. Remember, so we get this beautiful image of the lake of the heart, the heart as the waters in which the emotions kind of tread or sail. And the lake of the heart is calmed. And I talked about blood circulation and all that way back when, when we were at this passage. But this is a moment in which the narrative space and the metaphoric space fuse because right after that lake of the heart, we get the as one who with laboring breath has escaped from the deep to the shore and turns and looks back at the perilous water so my mind still in flight turned to look back once more on the past that no one left alive. The metaphoric space of water and turning to look back on water is pushed 
into the narrative, the story. So Lake of the Heart, looking at the turbulent waters, heart calmed down, looking back at the, as I said in that first episode, the Bosporus or some place that is calmed down and you climb ashore. That is where the metaphoric and the narrative start to infuse each other. And that's when Dante's poetry is really gorgeous. And if Mandelbaum is right, if this is a verb that is used to express the way oil is sucked up a wick, then again, the metaphor that we had earlier, like oil across the surface, is now found in the narrative, and it makes it richer, deeper, darker, more beautiful writing all in all. The passage goes on. Virgil answers. If you prefer, I'll cart you down that easier slope on the other side. So they're up on this bridge-like structure, this ridgy bridge. We've talked about it as spines, as ridges. I've kind of steered you away from thinking it yet as formal bridges with keystones because I don't think that's quite there in the text yet. It's going to become more and more visualized as such. It still is a little spiny and rocky at this point, but they're up on this thing that passes over the pouch. And Virgil says, I'll get you to the other side. Let's go on and pass over it. To the other side, it's easier, and then we can go down that side. So this leads us to the geography of the eighth circle. Apparently, the floors of these pouches, the floors of the evil pouches of the Malabolcha, these floors are flat, which means if they're flat, this whole thing is sloping down toward the center of hell, right? We're always heading down, but apparently the floors of each of these pouches are flat, which means that the first side that our pilgrim and Virgil come to is going to be higher than the far side of the pouch. You see what I'm saying? If I come to this pouch and its floor is level, but the whole structure is sloping down, that means the first side of the pouch I come to is higher than the side across the ridge or bridge on the other side because it's all sloping down. Interesting that we're kind of being shown that here there's an easier side to get down. Let's cross the ridge and go down that side so that then we can be on this flat bottom. And let me also say, what an arduous climb it must be back up this thing. Our pilgrim is never going to have to make that climb. But if the whole thing, these ridgy, spiny, bridge-like structures are sloping down toward a pit, this must be quite arduous to climb back up. If you know comedy, just think of Virgil and the long walk home. When Virgil is dismissed from the poem, he's going to have to walk back to limbo. And that whole walk is going to be uphill in Inferno. And he's going to be walking up these ridges, which must be an arduous task. Poor Virgil. But not yet. The passage goes on. And I, for me... It's just perfect to do whatever pleases you. Wow, Dante, you've been hard on Virgil before. In this canto, you are not hard on Virgil. You are my lord, and you know I won't depart from your will. You also know the things I don't even articulate. Virgil and Dante seem super in sync right here. What's up? Well, we're going to have to talk more about this at the end of the canto, but I think it's important to just stop and note how in sync 
Virgil and Dante are, that Dante seems to be saying, hey, what do you want to do? I'm going to do, and you will do whatever pleases you, and you are my Lord. You're my guide. I follow you my will. Good grief. The last time we've seen Virgil in these kind of circumstances, he's been often castigated. Poor old Virgil's come in for some hard times, and some hard times are ahead in Canto 20 for Virgil. But right now, he and the pilgrim seem super synced. The pilgrim almost in obeisance to the Lord Virgil. We want to talk about that a lot at the end of the canto, but I bring it up now because it leads us out to the back of this passage. So we came on to the fourth embankment, the text goes on, and that would be the lower embankment. That is, we've come down past, we've now passed the third pouch, and we're on the fourth embankment, so the fourth pouch is ahead of us. They turned and went down on the left to the straightened bottom, and that's, if you're not looking at my text, that's S-T-R-A-I-T-E-N-E-D, the straightened or narrowed bottom that was perforated with holes. This is the first time that Virgil and Dante have descended to the bottom of one of these pouches. You could be forgiven if you didn't think this was ever going to happen. We've already been over two pouches in which we've kind of just looked down in them and looked at the pimps and looked at the seducers and looked at the flatterers, but we've never made a descent into one of the pouches. Let me just say that it's a trope of the commentary to point out that the circles of fraud, these ditches, these evil pouches, are much like the zoos in central and northern Italy in Dante's day. That is, wild animals, and apparently there were still even leopards around in Italy, not so far off Dante's day, that wild animals would be captured, and the way a zoo would be set up is pits would be dug, the animals would be put down in the pits, and people would walk along the lanes, you know, staring down into the pit where the animals were. So we We've kind of had a zoo-like structure for the pouches so far, and now we're going to enter the cage and go down. And again, they've crossed to the lower or easier side of the ridge so that it's less of a trek down to the bottom. And then Virgil does the impossible. My good master pulled me to his side, to his hip, to the to the side of him, basically pulled me up onto his hip, and didn't put me down until we came to the hall where the sinner made his lamentations with his legs. Now, you know, of course, that I could go all off on the body spirit question here, and we haven't really talked about the body spirit question for a long time and corporeality and incorporeality. And you know, back in the earlier episodes of this podcast, I was all lathered up about corporeality and incorporeality and how can the dam take up space and how can the dam have mass and all of those kind of crazy problems and how can a spirit have mass and how can a spirit feel pain and oh, you remember all this stuff, right? Okay, Fine enough, and I could get all lathered up here about how can Virgil pick up Dante and just like how can Virgil put his hands over Dante's eyes in front of the walls of Dis. Great, fine, but let's skip it and let's go to a metaphorical point instead. Dante needs Virgil to carry him down into this pouch. Why? There's the big question, the big interpretive question. Why? Does our pilgrim 
need Virgil? Can he just clamber down this slope on his own? Why does Virgil need to lead and even carry our pilgrim down into the pit? There is an old anagogical reading. Remember those various levels of readings we talked about earlier? There's an anagogical that is the soul's development reading of this that would say that in order to come on the condemnation of the church that we're about to come on, classical poetry and particularly Virgil is a way to lead the soul and strengthen it so that it can take on the evils of its day. And that's an old anagogical reading that floats around some of the older commentary on Inferno. There's also a not quite so old allegorical reading. That is that Virgil as the allegory of reason, remember this old reading of Inferno, Virgil as the allegory of reason is the one who helps the pilgrim down here in which he will finally confront right head on bad church corruption. Reason needs to lead you to this place, not emotions. You need to be taken here by your thought processes and your deductions and your insights based on mental rational processing rather than your emotional response. Unfortunately, the emotional response is going to play heavy in the rest of the canto to come. So while it sounds good, we are going to distinctly enter in to the pilgrims and ultimately the poets behind him because they're strangely fused in Canto 19, the pilgrims and the poets' interiority and emotional space, to use modern words for it. Maybe there's another way to think about this. Maybe there is a way in which Virgil himself, in writing the Aeneid about the founding of Rome for Augustus Caesar, for the imperial court, maybe there is a way that Virgil himself learned to tiptoe around the political landmines of his day in the same way that Dante needs to learn how to tiptoe around the power trip lines in his own world in order to be able to criticize the church. After all, many of the people who Dante is mm, at the will of, at the whim of, many of the warlords who help him while he is on the run have various connections to the church, and you don't want to kick the church too hard. Some of them would like to reform the church. Some of them would like to change the church. But after all, they're all beholden to the church for various reasons. And there are all kinds of traps and tripwires and pits and quicksand all around Dante if he's going to criticize the church. And maybe there's a way, and we want to talk more about this, maybe there's a way in which Virgil gently learned to tiptoe around some of the landmines, I'm using so many metaphors, some of the landmines around him as he wrote the epic about the founding of Rome. After all, Aeneas is not exactly the most positive character all the time. Dido climbing up on her funeral pyre being Exhibit A. Perhaps there's a way in which Virgil subtly criticizes the imperial strategies of his political moment while at the same time maintaining his reverence for them. Maybe there's a way that the pilgrim and ultimately the poet has to learn that. 
Having said all that, I want to move on to a speculative question. Why does Dante need to descend into this pouch? So here we are. They're up on the ridge. He sees one of them kicking around with redder flames on the bottoms of his feet, the soles of his feet. He says, you know, who's that one? Virgil says, I'll take you down there and you can talk to him yourself. The pilgrim seems to uh, basically say, my liege lord, I'll do as you wish. (laughs) Almost like a vassal and a lord. Down they go, down the shorter of the embankments. And Virgil carries him and he ends up right in front of the hole where this sinner is upside down with his feet in the air. Why can't Dante do this from up on the ridgetop? Why can't he have this conversation he's about to have up there? What calls Dante to this place? And I think that that is an incredibly, what do I want to say, salient and incredibly tasty bit of interpretive matter that comes up in the poem. Of course, it's about the condemnation of the church. And here, when I say this, I go back to that phrase that we encountered earlier in this very canto, my beautiful San Giovanni. This beautiful thing, as I said, aesthetics, meaning both the combination of structure and morality, this beautiful thing has been ruined. And so the condemnation of the church's corruption calls, pulls at Dante's heart and leads him into this pit as a poet, leads his own imagination to go not just on the ridge and look down at the animals in the zoo-like structure, but actually to engage them fundamentally. Now, listen, later in other evil pockets, he's going to engage the sinners while standing up on the bridge. So he doesn't have to necessarily come down here. I mean, he could, let's let's face this, this guy is headfirst in a hole. So they would have to yell at each other. But, you know, in an imaginative landscape, it could happen. You can make the poem be what you want the poem to be. There is something that calls our poet down to the bottom of this pouch. And it is, I think, connected to my beautiful son Giovanni and what happened to it. But maybe there's also something here closer to Dante's poetics. And let me explain this for a moment. Dante is living in an age in which secular poetry is on the rise. It's not so many years very few years after Dante that we're going to hit Boccaccio. In fact, it's even fewer years that we're going to hit Petrarch. So these figures are coming and the French troubadours have already come and they are engaging in a secular form of love poetry. The church, by contrast, still fully informs Dante's art. Now, I'm not saying that the troubadours are not basing much of their love poetry on church doctrine. They are. I'm not saying that Petrarch isn't using his own expressions of love to also comment on churchly expressions of love, particularly in the growing cult of Mary. He is. And I'm not saying that Boccaccio has run away from the church. He hasn't. But the Roman Catholic Church informs Dante's poetry. It is at the epicenter of his own poetics and his own thought. And there is a way in which coming into this pouch brings our poet closer to the heart of his own poetry being written 
in an increasingly secularizing age, an age in which poets are starting to pull away and talk about human love and human affection and divine love and divine affection no longer necessarily forms the very core of their art the way it does Dante's. So there may be a way that descending into the third pouch where these corruptors of the church are punished is a way in which the poet is getting closer to his own poetics. We'll watch that happen in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. So subscribe to this podcast, give it a rating. Thank you again for being a part of it. I so appreciate it. And a rating or a comment about the podcast would be brilliant in terms of the analytics and helping me out. Otherwise, stay tuned. Because we got to hear who this guy is upside down in this hole. We got to figure out just how brave Dante can be, just how he gets to tiptoe around the tripwires of his own political and social landscape. All of that's ahead on the podcast Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you right here soon.